morning, everybody. Good to see you. Thanks for being here. I want to also welcome everyone who's joining us online and give an extra special welcome to anyone who might be a guest with us this morning. This is always an interesting weekend because there's a, 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 some kind of event that happens every Memorial Day that seems to impact our church attendance. But I'm always so grateful to be together with you on Memorial Day weekend. We always have such a wonderful opportunity together to worship. And what a great, great moving time of worship that was this morning. I, I love that so much. I hope it was as big a blessing to you as it was to me. If you got a Bible, I want to hear your pages turning to the New Testament book of Romans. And when you find Romans, I want you to find Romans chapter 2. And let me just tell you what we're doing or remind you of what we're doing in this message series called Unashamed, what we're doing is we're working our way through the book of Romans, all 16 chapters, but we're not looking at Romans from a verse-by-verse perspective. What we're doing is we're looking to understand the major themes that we find in each of the chapters and see, and we'll see together that they are connected from beginning to end. Now, uh, as I mentioned last week when we began, some of the chapters are, are so uh, um, important that they require more than one message. And so we began with Romans chapter one and my son Andrew introduced the series a couple of weeks ago by sharing from Romans 1, 16 and 17, which is basically the theme of the book of Romans. That's where we get this title, Unashamed. And then last week I shared with you from Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 32. But we find ourselves in Romans chapter two today. Let me just remind you a little bit of the background of the book of Romans. It was written by the apostle Paul around the year 57 AD from the city of Corinth while he was there on an extended break from ministry. He was on his way to Jerusalem to deliver an offering to the church there that he had received on his most recent missionary journey. And his plan was to go from Jerusalem then, once he delivered the offering, to Rome to visit a church that he had never seen before, that he uh, had heard about, but had never visited before. And then from Rome, what Paul's dream was, what was really in his heart, was he wanted to travel to Spain because he wanted to plant churches there because Paul was an evangelist and a church planter at heart. But because Paul realized that when he went to Jerusalem, he might run into some trouble, uh, even to the point of maybe having his life threatened, he decided that he would write the book of Romans before he left and then make arrangements for it to be delivered by a friend. And so the book of Rome or the letter of Romans uh, that we're looking at actually arrived in Rome about a year before Paul did. Uh, But Paul wanted to make sure they got this information because he wanted to make sure that the believers there had a fully developed understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ for two reasons. Number one, he wanted them to know what he believed. Paul was major major character in the New Testament, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, and uh, he was such an evangelist, such a powerful soul winner. He wanted to make sure that they understood what he believed, but more important than that, number two, he wanted them to have a fully developed understanding of the the gospel, the message of the gospel, so that they would know exactly what it meant to follow Jesus. And because of that, the book of Romans is a powerful, powerful letter. It's basically a comprehensive course in Christian living. And... uh, There are three things that you kind of notice about the book of Romans when you look at it from the perspective of it being written by Paul. Number one, it was Paul's most personal letter because he really kind of pulls the curtain back and lets you see a little bit of who he is, even to the point of talking about his own struggle with sin. We'll see that when we get to Romans chapter 7. It's Paul's most theological letter, and that's why it's so important for us to understand because we need to understand theology. We need to understand the truth about God. And then number three, it's Paul's most practical letter. 
And so that's why we're involved in this study. Now, I just want to also say as we introduce this week's message, how important it is for us to always remember that when we go to church, when we gather to worship, we need to make studying the Bible uh, a part of our experience. I read a criticism this past week of preachers who share messages that have any real genuine depth because according to the critic, those kind of messages are just too hard for uh, average people to understand. But my response to that is, what's the alternative? Going to church and just hearing a, a message about how to feel better about yourself or to how, how to have a positive attitude, how does that help you when you deal with the realities of living in a sinful and a broken and a fallen world? How does that help you deal with the disappointment that comes into our lives often, sometimes seemingly on a daily basis and on and on and on? There needs to be a certain level of depth when we come to church, we open up our Bibles for this part of the service because we need to have a deeper understanding and appreciation of who Jesus is. He's the centerpiece of the Bible. And the more we learn about Jesus, the more we understand about Jesus, the more we love our salvation, the more we love the grace of God that makes our salvation available. Uh, we need to have biblical preaching so that we can understand and obey the precepts and the principles of the Bible. The Bible from cover to cover is filled with precepts and principles. And I've told you that before on many different occasions. And, and I've described a precept and a principle like this. A precept is like driving down the road and you come to a stop sign. What are you supposed to do? Everyone say stop. Stop. Not everyone does it. But that's what you're supposed to do. The message is singular and the message is clear. You can't run through a stop sign, get pulled over by a police officer and say, well, I didn't really understand. I was a little uncertain about what I was supposed to do. It's just clear, it's absolute. Then you drive down the road a little bit further and you see another sign and it says, drive carefully. What does that mean? Well, that might mean something to you that's different than what it means to me, but it is a direction that we're given that we have to pay attention to. And the Bible is filled with precepts and principles. The Bible is filled with absolute truths from God that we can't ignore, that we have one response to, and that is to obey. But the Bible is also filled with principles that are there to guide and direct our lives. What would be an example of that? Well, how about in Galatians chapter six and verse seven where Paul says, don't be deceived, God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. That's a principle. It doesn't give us an exact description of a specific moment that might happen in our lives, but it gives us a guidance about the choices that we make in life. And so if we don't open the Bible, we don't study the Bible together, we don't talk about the truths of the Bible, we don't learn the precepts and the principles of the Bible that guide and direct our lives. Uh, preaching the Bible helps us to have discernment, to know what's right and wrong. It helps us be protected from false teachers and false messages. And you can go on and on and on. I'll stop right there. I told you before that when I, the very first Bible verse I ever memorized in my life, when I was a little boy, about nine or 10 years old, was Psalm 119, 105. I memorized it from the King James Version when I was at church camp. And it says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. When I was nine or 10 years old, and that verse has shaped my life ever since, from the time I was a little boy till now. Now that's not to say that there weren't moments in my life when I chose to let something else guide and direct my life, but I always come back to the Bible because the Bible is not just another book. The Bible is the written revelation of God to man. And because of that, it's something that we need to know and understand. No quote about the Bible captures its importance better than this one from a man named N.T. Wright. Look at it on the screen. He says, the Bible is the book of my life. It's the book I live with, the book I live by, 
the book I want to die by. And this is how every believer, every one of us should feel about the Bible. And that's why when we come to church, we open up our Bibles and we look at it and we understand it book by book, chapter by chapter, line by line, word by word. Now, as we come to the book of Romans and the second chapter today, what we see is Paul giving a strong warning against hypocrisy. And in particular, he's giving a strong warning about the kind of hypocrisy that would lead you to condemn someone else for the very same sin or the very same sins that you commit yourself. And what we're gonna see is in Romans chapter two, Paul uses self-righteous Jews as an example of hypocrisy because Jewish Christians were among his readers and they would be able to relate to what he's saying. But at the same time, the message in Romans chapter two applies to all of us in all of our lives. And this is an important message for us to hear because if I were going to try to simplify Paul's message about hypocrisy in Romans chapter two, then this is what I would say. I would say that while the sin of hypocrisy is technically no worse than any other sin, it is for those outside of the church the worst sin a believer can commit because it confirms every bad thing non-believers think about Christians. Oh, they're all just a bunch of hypocrites. You ever known anybody who said that? You ever known anybody who put a wall up in their life because of the hypocrisy they've seen in other believers? They said, I want to be a part of that. I, I have this friend or this, that friend. I had this experience or that experience with somebody who said that they were a believer. And then the way they lived their life just broke my heart, completely shattered my ideas and destroyed my faith. I, I, I was, we had a great crowd last night. We always have a great crowd on Saturday night on Memorial Day weekend. And uh, my friend John Caldwell, who for many, many years was a preacher at, uh, who founded uh, Kingsway Christian Church over in Avon, was there for over 30 years, was here. He comes and worships here from time to time. We had a baptism afterward, and I quickly uh, changed back into my clothes and came out to see if he was still here, and he was still here. And we talked for a moment. He said, listen, I, I, the, your message tonight reminded me of a story. He said, my wife's father, my father-in-law, was a man who was never a Christian for a long, long time. He refused to become a Christian. And the reason why he refused to become a Christian was because of all the hypocrisy saw in the the Christians that he knew. And, and I know in some ways that's, that's not a very fair statement, and I understand that we don't have time to go into that, but the bottom line is on a practical, pragmatic level, he saw a lot of hypocrisy in the Christians he knew. And here's why. Because for many, many years in his life as a professional man, he worked for a company called Goodman Church Builders. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you or not, but where I'm from, part of the country I'm from is where Goodman Church Builders is, and they built many, many churches all over the country, and he was a general contractor for them, and he would oversee the buildings of these buildings. And, and John told me, he said, for many years, he, he just was not interested in becoming a Christian because of the Christians that he interacted with in the churches while building these buildings. How sad is that? I mean, honestly, how sad and tragic is that? He said, but all that changed when he was building a church in a little town called Eldon, Missouri. I've been to that church. It's called Ninth Street Christian Church. I had a friend who was a youth pastor there for a while. And he said the preacher there, who was a man named Gene Weiss, who was just such a godly man, was so real and so genuine in the working relationship that he had with my father-in-law that it ultimately changed his heart. And before he died, he made a profession of faith in Christ and became a believer. But this is the great danger, at least one of the great dangers of hypocrisy. Because while it is 
on a technical basis, no worse than any other sin. It is a worse sin for people outside the church because it confirms every bad thing they think about Christians that we're all just a bunch of hypocrites. And if there's a single verse in Romans chapter two that really captures the the reality of this, it's Romans chapter two and verse 24. I'm gonna put those words up on the screen and because we always make the public reading of scripture a part of our service, if you're able, I wanna invite you to stand with me and we're gonna read these words together. One single verse captures the danger, the danger of hypocrisy. Read it with me, let me hear your voices. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask that God would bless the reading and the hearing of his word. As we begin, I want to be really clear about what hypocrisy is and what hypocrisy isn't. So listen close. Hypocrisy is not is not failing to live up to a certain standard. Everybody's guilty of that, at least to some extent, because none of us is perfect when it comes, out, when it comes to living out the full reality of our faith. For example, I know that patience is a part of the will of God for my life, just like I know that patience is a part of the will of God for your life, because patience is a part of what we would call the universal will of God for all believers. We've talked about this before, you know, people get really hung up sometime on trying to understand what the will of God is for their life. Well, it's really easy to understand in one way. There is a universal will of God for all of us, and that is the same for you as it is for me, and it's the same for the person living on the other side of the world in the thatch hut. What would that be? Well, God wants all of us to be saved. God wants all, all of us to be filled with his spirit. God wants all of us to serve him, to worship him. God wants all of us to use our spiritual gifts to edify one another, to build up other people who are believers. God wants all of us to pray. God wants all of us to tr- trust him in trials. And you can go on and on and on. It's all, all these things are clearly revealed in the scriptures. Now, in, along with that, in addition to that, I do believe that God has a specific will for all of our lives. I believe God has a will for my life that I'm living out by spending my life serving the local church as a pastor. I'm sure that you could say what you think God's will is individually for you in different ways. So there's a universal will of God for all of us and there's an individual will of God for all of us. At least that's what I believe. And part of the universal will for God of God for all of us is that we all have patience in our lives because it's actually one of the fruit of the spirit that God wants to see produced in uh, in our lives through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Look at these words on the screen from Galatians chapter five, verses 22 and 23. Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit, now here it is, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what God wants for all of us. When you become a Christian, your sins are forgiven, you're given the promise of eternal life, and the Holy Spirit of God begins to live inside of you. And the instruction of the scripture is to be filled with the Spirit, which means to be controlled by the Spirit. And as you're filled and controlled by the Spirit, he's gonna produce these qualities in you. Now, can you have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in your life on your own? Absolutely you can, but only to a degree, right? only to a degree. But when you have that produced by the Holy Spirit, you have it in, without measure, in overflowing reality. And this is the will of God for all of us. And so I know that. I know that's the will of God for my life, to be patient. And while I am remarkably, my wife would verify this. <laughs> while I am remarkably patient in many ways, I am remarkably impatient in many other ways as well. But, and I want you to listen to me close because I don't want this to be misunderstood, that doesn't make me a hypocrite. The fact that I struggle with patience in different areas of my life, that does not make me a hypocrite. It makes me an imperfect Christian. In contrast to that, 
Hypocrisy is doing something wrong in my life and then turning around and condemning someone else for doing the very same thing with a big blind spot about my own failure. Hypocrisy is condemning in others what I overlook in myself. And this is a major theme that Paul addresses in Romans chapter 2. In fact, look at these words on the screen. This is the very first verse of Romans chapter 2. Romans 2, 1 says, You therefore have no excuse to pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. And while I'm confident that every one of us here would say, I don't want to be that way. I don't want my Christian testimony to be damaged by that kind of hypocrisy. Just saying that alone is not enough. We have to have some principles or some truths in our lives that we understand and embrace that keep us from falling into that trap of condemning other people for things that we do in our own lives. And so as I read and studied Romans chapter 2, for this message, I have three truths or three principles that I want to share with you that can help us avoid making that mistake. If you're someone who likes to take notes, then here's the first truth that we have to understand. Remember, all of this revolves around this reality of hypocrisy, the danger of hypocrisy. And the first rule is this, I have no room to judge anyone for anything. Write that down somewhere. Maybe even in the margin of your Bible next to Romans chapter 2. And I go back to the verse we just read a moment ago, Romans chapter 2 and verse 1, where Paul says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we have to remember the context in which Paul wrote these words. Remember, our book of Romans which is the letter Paul wrote to Romans, is divided up into 16 chapters. There were no chapter divisions when Paul wrote it. There was just a letter that was written. But these words come right on the heels of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32 that we talked about last week. And we saw last week, it is a brutal, brutal passage of Scripture where Paul talks about the wrath of God being revealed against sin in the world because God has been rejected by so many in the world. And as a result, he said, sin has been released in the world. It was an ugly, ugly passage of scripture. In in one sense, you could look at it like it was a big long list of sin, of different sins that were happening in the world. And, and, And they were as big and significant as things like sexual perversion and murder to what some people might think of as garden variety type sins like gossip and deception and disobeying your parents, to what some people might even think of as respectable sins like greed and pride and boasting, if there is or ever could be such a thing as a respectable sin, there really can't. But the bottom line is it was just a really inclusive list. And when you looked at it all together, it was all really, really bad. And then you turn to Romans chapter two, And Paul says in the latter part of verse 1, you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, I can't speak for you, but to me, that's a sobering statement because it reminds me that whenever I'm tempted to pass judgment on someone else, I need to stop and I need to ask myself one simple question. Here it is. Am I perfect? And the answer is always the same, no, 
not even close. And it's the same for you as well. The Bible teaches that we're saved by God's grace, not by our good works and not by our behavior. And because of that, we have all, if you're a Christian, we have all in our lives been shown by God more mercy than any of us ever deserved. Somebody say amen to that. I mean, how can you say anything other than amen to that? We've all been shown more mercy by God than we deserve. So how wrong and hypocritical is it than to treat other people with less mercy than we have been treated with by God? Less mercy than we ourselves have received. That's why Paul writes what he does in Romans chapter two. Here's another example, Romans chapter two, verses four through eight. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Now, before we go any further, we have to make sure that we understand what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that you can somehow earn salvation and eternal life in verses six and seven. What he's saying is the choices that we make in our life should lead to results that mirror those choices. And when you choose faith in God, which leads to salvation, the result will be a life that only God can give you. And it will be a life then that should include doing good. Look at these words on the screen from Paul. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 and 10, for by, is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's a gift by, from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now look at the verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus, read the next part with me, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Doing good on its own does not gain anyone eternal life, but those who genuinely and sincerely trust in God for eternal life will, as a result, do good works. And a part of that good will include showing mercy to other people who need mercy just like we needed it when God showed mercy to us. Now, having said that, here's the inevitable question. Yes, pastor, but aren't we as Christians supposed to speak out against sin? Or in other words, aren't we as Christians supposed to in some way, some form, judge other people because of their sin? Well, I'll go back to the way I phrased it in the beginning. Aren't we as Christians supposed to speak out against sin? Here's the answer to that question. Yes, yes, in certain circumstances and settings, But as we do, we need to recognize and remember that we are also sinners. We don't do it from a self-righteous standpoint. We do it from the brokenness of a sinner who's been saved by the grace of God. I'm sure we're all familiar with that old saying, we need to hate the sin and love the sinner, right? That sounds so good. I hate that statement, I always have because it makes it easy to forget about my own sin. We need to hate the sin and love the sinner. So we're focused on someone else's sin. Well, how about we hate our sin first? Honestly, seriously. 
this kind of a statement, this kind of a phrase, this kind of a practical theology that someone might address makes it too easy to forget that we're sinners. And I'm gonna say something that may be misunderstood. I'm gonna say something that you might completely reject. I'm gonna say something that might cause you to leave today thinking I'm an absolute heretic, but I'm gonna say it anyway. When, we need, when it comes to the idea of hating sin, we need to hate our own sin first. In fact, we need to be harder on ourselves than we are on anyone else. And one of the reasons why is a very practical reason, because it's impossible to have a hypocritical attitude towards someone else when you hate your own sin. There are two things that I know for sure in life. Number one, I'm not perfect. And number two, it's not my job to judge the world. It's my job to speak the truth of God's word. But it's not my job to judge the world. Here's the second thing that I see, the second truth of the second principle in Romans chapter two that can help us when it comes to this this danger of hypocrisy. Write this down. Remember, God doesn't show favoritism. I'm gonna put Romans chapter two, verses nine and 11 up on the screen for all of us to look at. Paul writes and says, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Now look at the last part. For God does not show favoritism. Right there in the text. Right there in the scripture. Well, let's talk about a couple couple of fundamental truths here. When when Jesus was in the world, he was involved in his earthly ministry. His earthly ministry involved Jews and Gentiles. A Jew, of course, is someone who was born a Jew, someone born with that heritage. A Gentile is someone basically who is a non-Jew. The word Gentile is a a word that is a translation from the Hebrew word goyim uh, in the Old Testament and a translation from the Greek word ethne in the New Testament. It basically means nations or people groups or people. We get the the word ethnic or the idea of some uh, ethnic from that Greek word ethna in the New Testament. But basically it was just a reference for somebody who wasn't a Jew. And from the Jewish perspective, um, Gentiles were not on the same level as them. They were pagans, they didn't know the one true God. And um, Jews referred to them as being unclean, called them the uncircumcision and dogs and other terms like that. But when Jesus came into the world, he came into the world to offer salvation to all men everywhere, both Jews and Gentiles, because that's what the Messiah was pre- predicted or prophesied to do all the way back in the Old Testament. You can go to Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1 and, and read these words. Here is my servant. This is a reference to Jesus, the Messiah. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to, note this, the nations, not just one nation but the nations. You go down a little bit further, Psalm, or excuse me, Isaiah 42 and verse six. He said, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the earth and, and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, specifically mentioning them. And ultimately, that's what happened. And you familiar with your Bible, you know you can open your Bible to Acts, which is like the history book of the New Testament. You can go to Acts chapter 10, you can read about the very first Gentile convert. He was a man named Cornelius. He lived in a place called Caesarea. If you've been with me to the Holy Land, you've been to Caesarea. Caesarea by the seaside, not Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea by the sea. 
That's where Cornelius lived. And it was too much time to go into the story, but you can read Acts chapter 10. You can read this crazy story about how God brought the apostle Peter to the home of Cornelius for the purpose of him sharing the gospel with Cornelius, a Gentile who is identified as a God-fearing man who prayed. So he was a seeker in that sense. And Peter shared the gospel with Cornelius and all the other people that were there. And as a result, salvations took place uh, beginning with Cornelius. Well, what happened right after that was that Peter, who was as Jewish as you could be, started to receive a lot of criticism from other Jewish believers because of sharing the gospel with a Gentile. And Peter explained why he did that. And you can read that in Acts chapter 11. And here's what was the result of his explanation. This is Acts 11:18. When they, the people who were criticizing him, heard this, Peter's explanation of how this happened, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. And of all the people, you and I, we should be very, very, very thankful for that today, don't you think? And so Paul then took this to a whole new level because he became an apostle specifically to the Gentiles. And uh, I love these words from Paul in Ephesians 2.13 where he was saying that after there was a time when Gentiles were excluded from any relationship with the Jewish people and they were excluded from all the promises God had made to them without any hope, now, because of what Jesus did, he writes these words, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. But in spite of all that, there was a time when many first century Jews believed that because they were specially favored by God, that he wouldn't hold them to the same standard as everyone else when it came to judgment. Now, here's what we need to understand. The Jews are specially favored by God because they're God's chosen people. You, if you know the story of how God called Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 to be the father of this new nation, then you know the reality of this. They're his chosen people because they're the people through whom he revealed himself to the rest of the world. But, and there's more to it than that than we have time to talk about. But after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, when it comes to sin and righteousness, they don't get any special favors. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 2.11, for God does not show favoritism. That's why he wrote in Romans chapter two and verse three, these words. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. And so a very practical truth for all of us when it comes to avoiding hypocrisy is to just remember God doesn't show favoritism. No matter, no matter how much better you might look than someone else, <clears throat> no matter how much of a spiritual heritage you might have, in contrast to someone who has none, God shows no favoritism. That's what the Bible clearly says. That's the message of Romans chapter 2 because Paul challenged his Jewish readers to abandon the notion that they deserve special favor from God simply on the basis of their heritage. And he's challenging all of us to do the same thing as well. When it comes to our relationship with God, the rules are the same for all of us. They're the same for you as they are for me, as they are for anyone else. And what that means on a practical level is that no one is exempt from God's standard of obedience. Can I tell you that this is, this is not just a problem in the context of Self-righteous Jews in 
Romans chapter two. I've been a pastor for a long, long time. And in every church I've ever served, I've had encounters with people who said about something in their life that was clearly in disobedience to the instruction of the scriptures. They said to me something like this, oh, but pastor, me and God, we got an understanding about this. (laughs) No, you don't. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't. It never has and it never will. No one is exempt. No matter what else you got going in your life, God shows no favoritism. And again, one of the quickest ways to eliminate hypocrisy from your life is to remind yourself of that every single day. You know, God loves you when you sin and you confess that sin and ask for forgiveness, he forgives you. When you ask God for mercy, he pours mercy mercy into your life. He'll never leave you or forsake you and on and on and on. But no one gets a free pass when it comes to disobedience. No one. Here's the third thing, and I'm gonna do this one quickly. What God cares about most is your heart. That's a, that's a truth that we find from cover to cover in the Bible, and we find it here in Romans chapter two. There are times in Romans two where Paul pre- speaks pretty sharply to the Jewish Christians, but he's using the self-righteous, <clears throat> hypocritical Jews as an example of what not to do. It'd be very similar to me standing up here on the weekend and uh, sharing a message where I use the idea of hypocritical, self-righteous Christians as an example of what not to do. But when you get to the end of Romans, you get to verses 28, or Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, you read this. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Now, for the Jews, I'm sure many of you know this, the mark of circumcision symbolized the covenant that they had with God. That's something that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 17 in particular. It was a part of what we call the old covenant. Just a reminder, if you have a complete Bible with you this morning, you've got a Bible that contains an Old Testament and a New Testament. Well, you can substitute the word covenant. You say, I've got a Bible that contains an old covenant and a new covenant. You can use the word agreement. I've got a Bible that contains an old agreement and a new agreement about how to be right with God. The old covenant, the old testament, the old agreement was following the law to be right with God, but nobody could do it because nobody could follow the law perfectly. And the Bible says if you stumbled in one part, you stumbled in all of it. It just was not possible. But it, it, was, it was a lesson that God was teaching to show us how much we needed his love and his grace and his mercy. Because when you get to the New Testament, the new covenant, the new agreement, you see that you're not right with God by your behavior. You're right with God by admitting you're a sinner and trusting in the grace of Jesus. What Jesus accomplished when he died in your place on the cross and paid the penalty for your sins. Somebody say amen to that. That's way better, right? If you would choose following the rules or grace, which would you choose? That was not a very enthusiastic answer. Grace, you would choose grace. Now, in practical life, sometimes we like to live by the rules, right? Because we say, well, that's not fair. And people like you and me, we have a strong sense of what's fair, right? And we don't like it when somebody gets, seems like somebody gets let off the hook. And you don't realize how much you need grace until you need grace. 
So we don't trust in our behavior and our ability to follow the rules. We trust in the grace of God. And so a part of that is reflected here in Paul saying that true circumcision today is not the physical act of circumcision. It's the circumcision of the heart in in, in the sense of our connection to God. Because a genuine spiritual commitment and righteousness can't be measured by external symbols. It can only be measured by internal attitudes. And it's not enough for your body to bear the marks of your religion. Your heart needs to reflect the reality of your faith. I read a story this past week about a California pediatrician who turned away a child and her mother refusing to treat the sick little girl because the mother had some very visible tattoos. And the doctor said that he was following his Christian beliefs, creating a Christian atmosphere for his patients, and that he believes tattoos are immoral. He even has a sign in his office that says, this is a private office, appearance and behavior standards apply. So he's obviously judging people by rules, his rules, And the outward appearance is more important to him than being faithful to his calling to treat sick children. But what we need to remember, and the reason why I even share that story, is that the way you look, the way I look, the way anyone looks from an external perspective is not what matters to God. What matters to God is your heart, the condition of your heart. Remember that story in 1 Samuel chapter 16 of how God sent the prophet Samuel to the home of a man named Jesse who lived in Bethlehem. If you've been with me to the Holy Land, you've been to Bethlehem. Because it was time to anoint the next king of Israel, Saul had failed miserably. It was time for the next king. Jesse had several sons. He brought his first son out. His name was Eliab. And in 1 Samuel 16, the prophet Samuel says that when he saw Eliab as impressive as He was, he thought to himself, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. When he looked at his appearance. But in 1 Samuel 16, 17, we read these words. But the Lord said to Samuel, spoke in the quietness of his heart, I guess. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the, what? Heart. He always has, he always will. What God is concerned most about is your heart. What God cares about is the heart. And so, how's your heart today? Team can get ready to come and close this part of our service. Book of Romans tells us how to live the Christian life, and what we're reminded of this weekend is that the goal of the Christian life is authenticity, being genuine and real. Doesn't mean perfect. Authenticity and perfect are not the same thing. We need to make sure our actions match our words. We need to make sure that we extend to others the same mercy God extends to us. And we need to remember that what matters most to God is the condition of our heart. And so the biggest question is how's your heart today? 